0: Well, good morning. How are you? Doing good? Nick and Sarah, that was amazing. I have to gather myself at this point. That was so beautiful. So honored to be a part of that and Christopher's dedication this morning. Um, Honored to be with you. Thank you guys for joining us and joining us online. We're really appreciative, and I'm thankful to be here with you. Hey, did you guys know today's Mother's Day? Did you know that? If you are a mom, we are so grateful for you and all that you do. We honor you. For all of you who have mothered your own or others, the bonus ones, I like to say, who have nurtured and loved, you have cleaned great knees, you have warded off monsters in the closet. Um, for those of you who have fed loud, full, messy tables or who cheer in the sidelines at all the games, all the things, right? For the ways that you have given loving discipline you have shielded the little ones and the big ones in the face of our scary world. For the ways you make memories for your family or simply get them where they need to be all the time in the ordinary days. For those of you who continue to love and nurture long past kids in your home. For the ways many of you have held and hold so much together. For the places you give of yourself that isn't seen or known for your own and for the bonus ones, thank you. Happy Mother's Day. And for those of you who feel a tinge of pain today because of mothers you didn't have, mothers you couldn't be, mothers you lost, uh, mothers with strained relationships, for those of us who feel the mixture of the both and of that of honoring the good of mothers and mothering in your story and feeling any tender parts um, that this day brings to the surface. Um, We acknowledge you and want you to know that we're praying for you and we care about that part of your story today. You know, for me getting to be a mother to my son is something I will never get over. It is one of my greatest gifts. And I also feel pretty in tune to the tender parts of this day. We had our own infertility journey, um, and for years I hated this day. It was a journey to get to where we are. Becoming a mother was slow, it was painful, it was a journey marked by loss and grief, and yet here I am on the other side of a miracle I wasn't sure would ever come. I'm a mama celebrating many things today aware of all the other people who are still in a season of waiting with no assurance that what they long for will ever come. In the middle of some of those years of trying and waiting and lost, people would say to me, oh, God is faithful. It'll happen. And what they meant was that God would give me a baby. And maybe they didn't mean to, but they tied his faithfulness to it. But the thing is that God never promised me a baby and he cannot be faithful to something he hasn't promised. He promised to be with me. To that, he was so faithful. And now I stand here with an almost three-year-old miracle cutie on this side of heaven, but you need to know that it wasn't God's faithfulness. I didn't deserve my son. I didn't suffer for a while and then earn him somehow as a reward. If the baby never came, if babies never come, God is faithful. I count my son's life as a living reminder of the wild generosity of God, a living, breathing picture of generosity, not faithfulness. God was good before. God is good now. And miracles happen. God is active. He is moving in our midst, bringing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven now. Miracles happen. But as Pastor Jeff says, we can't have a theology of miracles without also having a theology of suffering. They both need to exist together. Because sometimes the prayers don't get answered the way we want. Or we have a host of unanswered ones, right? We don't get the full picture. But God does. So wherever you find yourself in the waiting, in the suffering, in the broken dreams or right in the middle of the miraculous and wild generosity of God. May you take comfort in his faithful promises to be with you no matter what, to make things somehow work out for good and to not waste an ounce of our stories because he doesn't, he doesn't. I have gotten to watch a village of mothers and nurturers surround me and my family in the last year and a half in ways that leave me absolutely stunned. If I talk about it too long, I'll cry. See, I gotta ratchet it back, gotta ratchet it back. (laughs) I've been mothered. Um, I've gotten to have key bonus moms in the life of my son while I navigated pretty intense breast cancer treatment last, last year and a half, one of those being my baby sister who's in the service and I can't look at you. But she's single, and I just wanna say that some of you can be bonus moms if you're single. Just saying. (laughs) What a gift to us. What a gift to us. I love to celebrate every ounce of this on this day. And because so many of you have been along with me or prayed with me in this journey, I want you to know that today, of all days, is my last day of cancer treatment. I know! (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you. I finish um, my oral chemo tonight, and so that feels really kind of the Lord to do for me. I'm so thankful. And I'm a celebrator by nature. I say you celebrate every single thing you can. Might as well, right? I've got a plethora today. So thanks for hanging with me for my very long and pretty personal Mother's Day intro. (laughs) Right? As we turn to our series today, let's pray, God, would you open our hearts and our minds as we come to your Scripture. Just speak to us in the ways only you can, Holy Spirit. We look to you. We want to align with what you are doing. And we invite you now. Amen. We are in a series called Jesus, Hope, Help, and Healing, where we are focusing on Jesus and what he did with his life and his ministry, specifically through the book of Mark. We are working through the book verse by verse, taking in each miracle, each teaching, each posture of Jesus' life, and asking what hope, help, and healing did He offer, and is He offering to us and through us in our world today? This morning, we're looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43, and it is iconic. It's an iconic scene in the Gospels, and I want us, as best as we can, to try to imagine it, okay? So let's dive in, shall we? Verse 21. Verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. There are several main characters in today's passage, and we've just been introduced to one of them, Jairus. Knowing he is a synagogue leader tells us more about him. He's a religious leader in this time, and they tended to be powerful, um, influential with a high social standing in society. But here we see him falling at his feet before Jesus. Now this isn't something that the average religiously elite person would do. They tended to be more serious, um, more pious maybe. But here we have a desperate father who had enough faith to seek Jesus out and fall at his feet in a time of crisis. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Imagine like a packed subway car or a full concert where people are just touching you. You know, that's the vibe here. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Our next main character is the bleeding woman. We don't know her name, but there are some things we can know and assume here. Things important to recognize and understand that we miss in our culture um, that would have been normal or even universally understood in a Jewish context. So wanting to understand this context, we need to look back to Levitical law given by God in the days of Exodus. God created guidelines for Israel, and one of them was this clean and unclean. Like, what's the deal with that? That sounds so foreign to us. We hear clean or unclean and immediately think of good and bads in our minds, right? Good and bad. Words like dirty or pure. To be unclean speaks to being morally corrupt in our minds, but it had nothing to do with morality. Everyone would have moments when they would become unclean. A woman's period would make her unclean. She would be cleansed. She would no longer be unclean. This didn't speak to her morality. This was actually all about God's space, about sacred spaces and the need to keep God's space a pure space. So there were rituals in place so that any lack of wholeness or vitality could not enter a sacred space in our pre-Jesus, pre-resurrection days of the tabernacle and temple periods. Being unclean, as we see it in Scripture, is not being morally corrupt. It's a seasonal part of everyday life for a Jewish person in this time. But her situation is unique because she has been unclean continuously for 12 years. We don't know why she is bleeding, um, but that's a very long time. This means she could not engage in any of the corporate spiritual gatherings, She could not enter temple. She could not engage in social context either. She could not be touched. She could not be hugged. Because you see, there was this transfer at play. Someone who was unclean could transfer their uncleanliness. In the context of leprosy, which is a more obvious form of being unclean in this time, it's a skin disease that would spread all over your body. That kind of uncleanliness, that disease could transfer. So someone with leprosy was supposed to enter a public space and they were supposed to yell unclean to let everyone know that they were there. It's like yelling four in golf or hot pan by someone in the kitchen, right? You warn them of a threat. So people wouldn't get too close to be on the receiving end of that kind of uncleanliness transfer. Unclean always transferred to clean, always. Now, her case would be a less obvious form of uncleanliness, but the expectations were the same. She would not have been welcomed in a public space because that uncleanliness would transfer. Now what we also know about her is scripture says that she'd suffered a great deal. She spent all she had. Her condition only grew worse. So, socially, she's outcasted because of the whole unclean bit. Physically she's suffering. Financially, she's completely depleted, and she's in a worse state than she was before. That's incredibly frustrating. She is also a desperate person. So what does she do? When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Some translations say the hem of his garment, like the very edge of his clothes, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. This is a profound statement, a profound picture of faith, pre-healing belief in the power of Jesus at the very edge, the hem of his clothes. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt it in her body that she was freed from suffering. Bam. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, there were a ton of people around against Subway, packed concert feel, right? And his disciples, once again, are perplexed by Jesus. And they say, you see the crowd against you? His disciples answered, yet you asked who touched me? Like, who is not touching you, my dude? (laughs) It's nice of Mark to include the reactions of the disciples. Just bless them. You know, they didn't know what was happening. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Okay. Wow, wow, wow. This is a significant moment. First, we know she's terrified. She's unclean, after all, surrounded by people. So this is pretty bold, pretty radical of her. I imagine she maybe would have been embarrassed to bring to light something so private. Right? And she was probably ready to be rebuked here. But she isn't. Quite the opposite, actually. Jesus offers her the opportunity to share her story. It says, she said, the whole truth, the whole story. Now we can think, oh, that's nice, right? But knowing her last 12 years, this piece is actually crazy kind of Jesus to give to her. Because there were multiple fronts that she needed healing. There was a physical one for sure. But there were also pretty big spiritual and social implications here, and Jesus makes space for all of it. And he publicly gives her assurance. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free in front of everyone. Can you imagine that? While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? How devastating, dismal, why bother. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. In this culture, not only would you take the time to grieve, but you would also hire professional mourners for a period of time. They would cry, they would wail. It's quite the job, right? Now I'm a sympathy crier. You could hire me for your next moment of grief. Just kidding. What a job, though. Now, so they've already brought in the pro mourners. He went in and said to them, while this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. It's this moment of bitter laughter. It's like a mocking kind of laughter. Why did they laugh? I can't help but pause at this. As I started studying for this message, this was something that God had for me. Therefore, I'm giving it to you, Early on this year, when I was reading the accounts of Abraham and Sarah, that passage jumped out at me, too, where an angel of the Lord came and declared to Abraham, "'I will surely return to you this time next year, "'and Sarah, your wife, will have a son.'" Now Sarah's listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself and thought, after I am worn out, and my Lord, speaking of Abraham, is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, and say, will I really have a child now that I'm this old? Is, is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yeah, you did. <laughs> it's another example of faithless Laughter. Why laugh? When I read this passage or I imagine her laughter, I put myself in her shoes. which she had long dreamed of and actually had tried to make happen to her, for herself before was coming to fruition in a f- way that felt so outrageous to her, impossible even, that she laughed with mocking laughter. Like the plans and goodness of God could be that Good. That's outrageous. You know, in this season of my life, I'm navigating my own fear and faith in a post-cancer world. It's really easy for me to live into a fear fantasy in my own mind. Maybe you haven't had cancer, but you understand the fear fantasy, right? What that looks like, whatever the worst-case scenario is, whatever that realist pessimistic voice is in your own mind do you do that? What does that look like for you? Where do you go? Does your default tend to be cynicism or doubt? In the face of that, in your story and in mine, what if the goodness of God is actually so outrageous we would laugh in disbelief at how good it could actually be? What if it is? Now, in this case, there's a 12-year-old girl, a premature death. Of course, they wouldn't want her to just be sleeping. So why laugh? I don't know. But I think we tend to brace for impact. We prepare for disappointment. It's easier to laugh this kind of laugh um, than to cry. Easier to prepare for the worst than hope for the dream. Sometimes it is. Because sometimes the hope feels risky, vulnerable, too hard to hold. Yet what does the angel of the Lord say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went into where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. (laughs) This is another incredible miracle. The goodness and generosity of God outrageous. Yes, it is. Now, looking at this account as a whole is something that's really important for us to do. You see, Mark specifically writes with a bracketing story structure. There are two stories that are connected to each other. One story surrounding a center story. It starts with Jairus, it goes to the woman, and then it goes back to Jairus. We see this all throughout Mark's writing. The connected stories are intended to interpret one another. So how are we to interpret these accounts in light of each other? How are they similar? How are they connected? What is meant to stand out to us? Three things I want to dive into, all interconnected from this passage. Desperation, pace, and love. The first is desperation. In our passage, both of these characters are in a state of desperation. When was the time that you found yourself desperate? Our desperation creates opportunity for God. Desperation can put us in a rich spiritual place, when you need God, and you run to him, and you fall at his feet, or you reach for the very edge of his clothes, desperate for his movement and intervention, right? And there's this deadly lie of the enemy that might whisper that you don't need God. It probably wouldn't sound like that. It would probably sound like um, you should be able to figure this out, right? Right? or you can control this, you just have to figure it out, you just have to get ahead of it, maybe if you did some more research, um, you can run some numbers, strategize some solutions, right? Control, the cost of control um, is a steep one for your soul. It's sneaky, but it's steep. And desperation is a point of completely surrendering that control, acknowledging the truth that you don't actually keep the world spinning. You can't actually protect everyone. You can't actually make it all happen. And it's in that place where you can see God's movement and you can't take credit for it,
1: right?
0: It becomes God's opportunity to show you his power and presence that's real and active now. Our desperation is God's opportunity. Desperation pace. And love, the second is pace. Our, go- our pace is not God's pace. Okay. True. Okay. We're in an interesting cultural moment, aren't we? Our pace, generally, is pretty frenetic, fast, loud. We order Starbucks. We walk it in to pick it up. Wait in line? No, ma'am. Not today. Okay. <laughs> Don't have to. <laughs> we value efficiency and system optimization and crushing that to-do list before 9 AM. Okay. If anything, the disruption, the traffic, the train, right? the slow driver in the left hand lane, oh, okay? the delayed delivery, the forced slowing of any kind causes frustration, right? How well do you do when you get interrupted? How patient are you? How full are you packing in that schedule? How do you handle disruption, small or big? We like to control timing, don't we? Gyrus's situation is urgent. It's literally life or death. It's about as urgent as can be, I'd say. And this woman's waiting has been long. So they both have their own experience with timing here. They both have what I like to call frustrated timelines. How have you seen or experienced a frustrated timeline. In the middle of this urgency for Jairus, Jesus changes the agenda. He heals the woman, but then he makes space for story time, right? Which remember, so powerful, beautiful, important. But what about Jairus? What about his daughter, right? I imagine him being pretty peeved by this, like he has a vested interest in getting Jesus to his daughter as quickly as possible. This is urgent. This is stressful, yet at the same time, I wonder if it would have been encouraging for him to see Jesus' power displayed before him. Did his faith grow, did his hope increase because of this? We don't know. Regardless, he's forced to wait. Now, we see places in Scripture that Jesus very easily could heal from afar, like he has the power to heal on the spot, so why make Jairus wait? Why not just heal his daughter before this whole bit with the woman? In the most hopeless place, Jesus tells him, don't be afraid, just believe. In the middle of the dark place, without resolution, without the miracle, in the middle of the weight and the unknown, the fear, the grief, that was the setting for glory. There's an element to God's glory that can be known no other way. It's not fun. It's not comfortable. It's actually devastating. But God's glory still comes within us, through us, in spite of us. There's purpose in our desperate places, even if we can't seem to see that from where we're sitting. Now, it's important to circle back on what I shared earlier about God's faithfulness, about how it's not dependent on us getting what we want. Because the healing or the miracle might not come the way we want. This account, chock full of miracles, it is. But ultimately, they would die again. Their bodies would fail again at some point. Our hope is ultimately not in getting what we want, because this side of eternity is not permanent. We will all face mortality at different times. Our hope is not in the temporary healing, but rather in the big hope that we have in Jesus for this lifetime and beyond. His plans do not finish for us at the grave. And we will know that glory as we trust in Jesus. May that joy and that hope and that desire stir in us too. God is able. God has the power to do miracles and we will continue to ask for them on earth as it is in heaven, amen? Yeah. And we will always point to the big eternal hope we have in Jesus too, because that's our big hope. God's pace is not our pace. Desperation, pace, and love, the last is love. The love of God is a radical, boundary-breaking kind of love. The first century Jewish culture You know, women were not valued. We have this powerful, influential man and this poor, unclean woman, and God makes space for them both equally. No one lifted women like Jesus did. We have this 12-year-old life and a 12-year condition, an emptying of life, and God restores them both. And then this uncleanliness that always spread and transferred to make a clean thing unclean, this time it went the opposite way. This unclean thing in both accounts at the touch of Jesus is made clean, leaving everyone astonished. Who is this that disrupts the transfer of cleanliness? Like for them, it would have been defying the laws of physics. Flipped it all upside down. The love of God is a radical, boundary-breaking kind of love. Now, I don't know what categories you have for the love of God, what box you might put Him in. You've done too much, you've gone too far, that the love of God is true for that person but not for you. Or maybe you just need to understand it more, you just need to comprehend it all, right? You just don't know enough yet. Or maybe if you fix yourself up a little bit, you can earn a little bit, clean yourself up before you come. Or that maybe you couldn't really change. Maybe that felt true back then, but is it still true for me now? Does the reality really seep into your belly and your bones that it's true for you today? Even if you've been here a long time, and you've heard this a ton of times, right? Whatever boundary you might put on the love of God, I invite you to know and step toward a God who will blow your box up. <laughs> you cannot earn it. You do not deserve it. God meets us where we are. He came to us first and you will never be able to wrap your mind or comprehend it all. His love is for you too. Our desperation, God's pace, God's love. I want to give you a moment to be still, to take a few deep breaths, to be present before God. If you're comfortable I'd invite you to maybe open your hands and set them just on your knees right where you are. There's nothing fancy about this, but sometimes our posture, our physical posture, speaks to our hearts and our minds, and the opening of your hands is a posture of receiving and releasing. So in this moment before God, I want you to think about desperation, yours or any burden you're carrying on behalf of someone else right now. And I invite you to name those things and your feelings about them to God. Now I want you to think about your pace. How have you held it? Where is your timeline frustrated? Where have you tried to make something happen in your own timing? What might you confess, surrender, or receive? Talk with God about that. want you to ponder and receive God's outrageous love for you that is more than you could know or comprehend his grace forgiveness and loving kindness God, we confess that we are prone to control and to hurry, to run ahead and ask you to catch up to our plans. We surrender before you. We pray now for healing in this place. We ask for hope and help in our desperate places. In your name, Jesus, the name that's above all names, we believe and we ask. You know each situation that we're walking through and we pray that your will would be done in us and through us would you increase our hope that you are a god that makes a way when there is no way your plans are so good they feel outrageous to us forgive us for the places we brace for impact where the disappointments in our history cause us to expect less of you may hope arise in us may faith arise in us is anything too hard for the Lord and for anyone in this room who is longing for a baby or who holds dear someone who is we lift them up to you now and we pray for the miracle of life that only you can give may we see your glory in the land of the living we love you amen Amen. Now, I want to stay in this kind of heart posture as we continue to worship. You're free to stay seated if you want to, but if you'd like to stand, let's continue to worship. team of folks who are gonna come up here be willing to pray in person if something came up for you in that time with the Lord I really want to encourage you to come be prayed over and if you were one of those people who's longing for a baby that we prayed over I want to give special encouragement to you to come and receive this but I know what I'm asking I know how hard that is literally so I recognize that what I'm asking you to do but if that's you I just really want to encourage you to let somebody somebody pray over you. As you go this week, I have a benediction I'd like to say over you. May you have faith that falls to the feet of Jesus, reaching for the very edge of his presence. May you surrender your timelines and your pace, trusting in God's timing. May you see and know God in and through your desperation. And may the radical, boundary-breaking kind of love of God cover you again and be modeled in your lives to the world around you this week. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Happy Mother's Day.